0: okay it's time for some hard truths here on ohl stories poper you and i always love to complain because it is the longest trip we have to make and we make it a couple of times and when you're going up there in the winter it's not exactly the uh the least cold I'm putting this all as mildly (laughs) as I can. I'm talking about the OHL's northernmost outpost in Sault Ste. Marie, but as much as we complain about the trip to get there and oftentimes the weather that we're greeted with, we actually really do love the city. It's a great place to visit that's full of great people, and we usually get to see some pretty good hockey.
1: We do. It's one of my favorite stops. It is a long trip, but once you're in that city, the proximity of the hotel to the rink, the rink itself, the people... Uh, just the short walk to downtown. It's got a great little coffee shop right around the corner too from the, uh, from the rink. I can't remember what it's called. Uh, maybe our guest Brad cochamilio with Sue today can help me out. It's on the same road that you travel down that goes right to the hotel. Um, and it's on the left-hand side. If you're coming from the hotel up the road, no idea what it's called. Great little coffee shop.
2: <laughs> Leave it to Paul hey people. Hey guys, he- it's- it's, it's great, to, uh, great, great to hear you guys having some nice things to say, that's for sure.
0: No, honestly, it's, it's not the weather, for sure. I remember the one time we actually shot a video of walking from the mall over to the rink, and what is it, like 150 meters maybe, but it was so cold. And of course, we were underdressed. A good friend of mine says there's no such thing as bad weather, just inappropriate clothing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't believe we've made it this far, talking about the Sioux and our trips out there without talking about the media room food, I think we've set a new record here.
0: Okay. So let's, let's, let's get right into that. And Brad will, will back us up on this. Muyo's is no longer a casualty of COVID. What the H E double hockey sticks are we going to do when we come back up your way, Brad?
2: Yeah, that's, um, that's actually a question I've got too, right? It's uh, you know, Muyo's has been kind of the, the staple for the media room and, you know, around here, as long as I can remember, right. It's, um, you know, they the building is up for sale. Um, so ideally, hopefully, maybe some sort of new ownership, um, you know, because I mean, it's that was a staple in the city for, I think, 60 years. Um, yeah, it's going to be, uh, you know, a very different media room. There's some quality media rooms around the league. And I know um, the Sioux is definitely, definitely up there with uh, with the ones I've been to. And it's going to be it's going to be different this year. That's for sure.
1: Um, I'm shocked that uh, somebody in the Sioux didn't gather OHL media contact information and send out an e-blast trying to start a GoFundMe account.
0: We would have propped it up. I would have absolutely donated. Are you
1: kidding? (laughs) Just for those chicken fingers alone. Uh, Brad, what's going on up in the Sioux right now?
2: Yeah, it's, uh, you know, as we record today, it's, uh, it's opening day for training camp and um, exciting times for, for this group. Um, you know, I, I noticed Kyle Raftis tweeting, uh, earlier today, you know, brand new scoreboard there, which was a, you know, it was a long time coming for that. I mean, you know, it's weird that, you know, as media people and as team people, we get excited over basically a screen that shows us what's going on, but, um, it's definitely, uh, I've seen it in action. Um, it's definitely a significant upgrade, which is good. Um, So we'll definitely uh, the replays will look a lot better um, the next time you guys are up. And I mean, you know what, there's a lot of excitement with this group Um, really. They, you know, like a lot of teams, there's a lot of questions too, um, especially in goal, but um, you know, this is a team that, you know, could be, could be interesting. I mean, I know they've had a lot of confidence over the years. They were, you know, they had high expectations going into, the season that we had canceled last year, I mean, they were looking at hosting the Memorial cup. Um, you know, they had a, a good core coming back uh, from that group the previous year that, you know, was competitive, but, but struggled at times. And, um, you know, I, I think with, with the core they have coming back and, and, you know, if you get a, you know, a good year out of some of these young kids that are, are coming through from the past few drafts, it could be, you know, they could be an interesting team this year. I mean, you know, like we, you know, a lot of other guys around the league have said there's, you know, more questions than answers at this point, but you know, let's face it. It makes life more interesting for us.
0: You touched on one of the things I did want to talk about, Brad, because Chris and I have been having a lot of fun these past 18 months, talking about the teams that have felt the greatest sting of the canceled season. And in the East, it's a debate. Is it Oshawa with that Tomasino trade? Cause they loaded up right. the year that as we got ended and then planned to host or put in a bid to host the Memorial cup the following year, Ottawa, of course, in a second straight, really strong run. Peterborough's in that mix in the East. But when I look at the Western conference teams and you alluded to it, the, the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds were, if they're putting in a bid to host the Memorial cup, they thought they had a team last season that never happened. So how much of that team might remain intact for what we're going to see in 2021?
2: Yeah, uh you know they're they're going into camp with uh with basically I think it's 14 guys that have you know relative OHL experience and out of those 14 guys, you know I would say you know at least 11 of them have you know relatively significant OHL experience in terms of you know seeing regular ice and um you know contributing regularly and contributing well. Um the tough decisions are going to be in that OA slot because they, you know, out of that group, there are six guys that are, uh, that are overage candidates. Seven, if you include Yaramir Pitlick, who's kind of still on their protected list. But I mean, I, I, him being, you know, him turning pro overseas and being drafted by New Jersey, I don't think they anticipate him coming back. But, you know, even that overage situation, you know they're going to be in a position where they're going to have three pretty darn good OAs. um you know guys like joe carroll who you know had a real good year um in 18 uh, in 1920 rather cole mckay who's you know been uh a, he's a local guy and has put up good numbers in the league uh, you know on defense you know rob calisti billy constantino these are you know two very high scoring defensemen that fit that system very well and um, you know I talked to Kyle Raftis yesterday just about kind of the veteran situation and it sounds like at least one of those two guys is going to be in the OA mix um, you know they are planning by the sounds of a to use an OA position on a defenseman so you know their OA situation is going to be really good um, you know when you look at some of the veteran guys like you know a kid like Tanner Dickinson who you know they signed him as a free agent uh, was planning to go to college he had a real good rookie year was drafted you know was coming off the US camp so you know he's a kid that they've got high hopes for Rory Cairns, you know, went from year one to year two, went from nine goals in year one to 30 in year two. And, um, you know, he's coming off the world junior camp. So, you know, this is a team that, you know, and that's not even mentioning their captain from two years ago and Ryan O'Rourke um, you know, this is a team where, you know, their veteran situation is pretty good. Um, you know, and, and even those OA guys, you know, those are guys that you can move for, you know, you're not going to get a massive haul, you know, for them. But those are guys that whenever three don't end up playing in the Sioux, they're definitely guys that could, you know, could contribute
1: on other OHL teams as, as always. You mentioned O'Rourke played 33 games in the American league last year for Iowa, obviously Minnesota property. Is the belief around the Sioux that he's going to be in the American league next year? You know what? I'm mean, sorry, I, this year, I guess now.
2: Right. <laughs> it's, um, you know, and, and I think there, you know, that's, Continually going to be in the back of their mind, um, just with you know this you know new idea that hey kids that played X amount of games can you know can play in the AHL. So like I'm sure they're you know they're cognizant of that, and you know I mean even then their blue line situation. I mean you know like I said they're they're looking at potentially keeping one of the two OAs if that situation with O'Rourke changes it could potentially change their OA decision as well. And, you know, maybe they decide to keep both the def- OA defensemen um, to fill that void. Um, you know, on the blue line, I, I feel like they should still be okay. Um, you know, even if O'Rourke does end up in the American league, um, which, you know, like you said, it's definitely a distinct possibility at this point, you know, between Jacob Holmes, um, you know, their first round pick from a couple years ago, you know he was solid as a rookie. Drafted now, um, you know the the rushing kid they took in the import draft. Everybody's really high on him. I haven't heard too many people have a bad thing to say about him and 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 his skill level, which fits this system really well. So, um, you know it's gonna be it's gonna be an interesting you know interesting decision to see how how that shakes down in their blue line, especially if O'Rourke does end up uh, does that end up in the American League. I talked to him uh, probably about two or three weeks ago. And, you know, he's just excited to be back. Um, you know, I, I, for him, I don't think, you know, as much as he wants to play pro, I think, you know, he's in a situation where if he ended up in the Sioux, he's got no complaints either.
1: You know, he's, he's looking forward
2: to be back. Like I'm sure a lot of guys are.
1: I'm glad, sorry, Farsi, just real quick. I'm glad that you mentioned the, uh, the Sioux's first round import selection. I think it's Kirill that's my, I'm not going yeah. to take a stab at his last name, Um just not, uh, but I saw the suit post a picture of this kid and I was like, is this kid 30? Yeah. Like he looks <laughs> like a monster.
2: Yeah. He's, um, and that's the thing, right. Is they, you know, they've done a good job, you know, even in the, even in the 2021 draft where, you know, the kids that they take there, you know, they've always got that puck possession style, which a lot of teams are going to, but you know, they've kind of. I I wouldn't say shied away from that because it's not accurate, but they've, you know, they've taken, a, if there's a kid that could play that style and is a little on the bigger side, they're going to bring that kid in. And, you know, this kid's a good example of that. Um, he's got good size. Like you said, he looks like he looks like he's older than me. Um, you know, so I'm pretty sure that I'm going to be, cognizant of that whenever I'm asking him questions not to make him angry because I'm not sure exactly what he would do with me um but yeah I mean it's I like I'm excited to to see him get in here um you know that it's going to be a little bit he's not in training camp just because of you know the COVID restrictions with people coming from uh coming from overseas um they are hoping Early, early to mid September at some point, um, that he'll be able to, that he'll be able to come over and uh, and finally join the team. So, you know, ideally in that situation, he'll get into at least an exhibition game or two before uh, the regular season starts.
0: You've alluded to it uh, a couple of times here, Brad, when you talked about a couple of high scoring defensemen that really fit the system in the Sioux, and you just talked about puck possession style. And when I reflect on, say, the past decade or so of Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds hockey from one Kyle to another as GM and from one coach to another coach to another coach there seems to be a consistency here and that's one of the reasons why like I said at the beginning when we come up there as much as we're going to complain about sitting on a bus for eight hours the game that we get to see is usually a pretty impressive game uh, at at the very least from the home team there's something like there's something cooking here that's that's very deliberate by design isn't there
2: Yeah, 100%. Um, They, you know, they're a team that, you know, even in the 1920 season where, you know, it was, you know, it was a tough year, you know, they had a, you know, a lengthy losing streak early in the year and, um, you know, they struggled at times very early in the year, but that was a team that, you know, when they were playing well, they were really fun to watch. Even as a, even as a younger hockey club, they were a lot of fun to watch. And, you know, it's been like that, you know, basically since, Kyle Dubis walked in the door. Um, you know, they struggled very early on, um, you know, when he got hired and then he made a coaching change, brought in Sheldon Keefe to replace Mike Stapleton. And pretty much from that point forward, you know, the ideal was always, we want this team to be competitive every year. And even in the years where they haven't been at the top of the division or at the top of the conference, they've been a tough out for a lot of teams like that 1920 season for as much as they struggle at times, you know, they played, you know, I was down in Oshawa for their Oshawa Hamilton trip that year. And, you know, they played a, a very good Oshawa team that night and beat them in a shootout. And, you know, that was a that was a team that, you know, even on a night if they were playing, you know, Oshawa, they they were gonna give that team a run. And, you know, like you said, that's by design. They bring in specific players that fit that system. Um, you know, they're not afraid to take a guy that's five nine. Um, you know, if he can play and if he fits the system and, you know, like a lot of teams are looking at now, they take players that are good people. Um, you know, I, I, I mentioned this to Kyle Raftis the other day that I don't think in, in, you know, in the last eight or nine years, however long it's been, I don't think I've ever had an issue with a player in terms of, you know, Hey, you got a few minutes, you know, can we talk They're they're all, and even seeing them around town. They're all super kids. And you can see that about a lot of teams. Um, you know, it's just something I've noticed, um, you know, in terms of, you know, you're getting good players and good people, uh, you know, as
1: part of the program. You mentioned all the overagers and then obviously that's going to happen when the Sioux was essentially built for last year, the canceled season. There's a lot of old ones still on that roster and a lot of questions, right. but I'm, I'm in agreement with you that I think the biggest question mark comes in goal. What, yeah. What's going on with the goaltending situation?
2: Yeah. Um, you know, so they made the decision prior to the import draft to, uh, to release the rights of, of Nick Malik. He's a guy that, you know, if they had had a season last year, um, here in Ontario, he probably would have been a Greyhound at this point still. Um, You know, I mean, he was a kid that, you know, he got passed over in the draft. I, you know, I think there were people that expected him to go. I thought maybe, you know, he could be a late round pick somewhere by someone, Um, you know, so he kind of made the decision. He hadn't necessarily closed the door on playing here this year, but like, you know, he wanted a little bit of certainty and, you know, he's going to play overseas. So, you know, that opened up one door and then. Um, You know, the team had to make some decisions as far as the OA situation, because there were actually in addition to the six guys that are in camp, there were three others that actually aren't in camp that they ended up putting on waivers, one of which was Ethan Taylor, who had been here for a couple of years, um, but didn't see a lot of action. Um, You know, it's going to be interesting. I mean, I'm I'm curious to see how the goaltending situation shakes out. Um, You know, part of Kyle Raftis's reasoning for, you know, coming into camp with no veterans is. You know, there's not a lot. His idea was there's not a lot of veteran goaltenders around now because of that year off. Um, you know, and even the guys that have been in the league, um, you know, some of them are in a similar situation to what Ethan Taylor would have been, where, you know, they've maybe played in two years, maybe played 25 to 30 games. Um, you know, so you're in, in that situation in some cases. And a lot of that's a, as a backup where, you know, you could come into the season with a couple of rookie goalies. Um, you know, and you, you've got almost that same type of experience um factor. You know, I I they're high on some of these guys, like Charlie Schenkel's a kid that they took in twenty twenty that I know they really like. Um, you know, all six guys that they have in camp are, you know, they're bigger kids. Um, you know, so they you kinda know, that kind of idea of, you know, fill the net a little bit. Um, you know, so it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting. I mean, that's at the end of the day, that's the biggest question mark on this team is what's gonna happen in goal. I think You know, there, are you know, obviously concerns everywhere in terms of, you know, how rosters are going to shake down. But, you know, for the Greyhounds, offensively, they should be okay with some of the high end guys they've got coming back. You know, on the blue line, they've got a couple of you at the end of the day, they're going to have a couple of veterans in there. So, um, you know, it's not going to be experience isn't a big issue um, when it comes to forwards and defense. It's just going to be in goal. And, you know, there's, there's lots of room for opportunity here
0: at this point. You mentioned having gone on that Oshawa Hamilton trip with the team uh, when last we played. There will not be a trip like that this yeah. season, obviously, because there will not be any crossing of the conferences. But we talk about this and and remember, we're sitting here from Kitchener where you know Mississauga is a cross-conference trip and it takes 45 minutes uh, to get there. Right. I don't know. and And we understand that the change to the schedule for this season is to cut down on travel but how can you even say that about a team like Sault Ste. Marie what what kind of difference if any does it make Brad if the Sioux is not going to Oshawa or Hamilton
2: yeah and I mean the the interesting thing for them is you know the Greyhounds are one of the few teams in the league that will actually that actually will get a handful of Eastern Conference games because they cut down on games with Erie and play Sudbury North Bay uh, because the, the the difference in in travel time, right? So, like for the Greyhounds, a trip to you know a trip to Sudbury is 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 closer than you know, say a trip to Kitchener, for example. Um, you know, to take that three hour drive from Sudbury to to the Sioux, so you know they're they're going to see a lot of Sudbury North Bay. Um, you know, there's a couple of back to backs with them um, over the course of the year, and I mean it's it's tough, right? It's you know there there are no You know, it sounds cliche, but there are no easy road trips necessarily for the Greyhounds in some sense that, you know, their easiest road trip is a three hour there and back to Sudbury, Um, you know, that they can do it in one night. But, you know, like you guys said, they don't have that luxury of, you know, even the cross conference games, you know, they don't have a cross conference game that's 45 minutes away where, you know, like you guys, it would make sense almost to have a handful more games against, say mississauga for example um you know to have Kitchener play mississauga a couple times i don't think in a situation like this that that would hurt um you know the schedule was definitely an interesting thing and you know i'll be the first to admit i'm glad i wasn't the one that had to deal with it because i can imagine the headaches it's probably causing and it's like well you know what cities do we have them go to and you know how long do we want to have them on the road and you know, how do we handle road trips? Like, I know when you guys were talking to Calming and and Oshawa, you mentioned about, I think it was him that mentioned about where they had, you know, a home game, a road game and a home game or something like that on a a weekend. And, you know, I can't imagine, like, I know doing a handful of trips, it's not easy. And, you know, it's, I don't know. It's an interesting situation. And I just, I, I don't envy any, like I said, I don't envy anyone that had to make the
1: schedule because of that, that factor. Right. Yeah. Weird here, but I'm going to ask my co-host a question, if you don't mind, Brad, actually. Um, Farzi, does the fact that the Sioux is now playing, you know, Sudbury and North Bay, even though the rest of the league isn't crossing conferences, does that give them an advantage?
0: Oh, gosh, no. No, I, I don't think it gives them any advantage, unless... I only ask of- because
1: we talk a lot about whether, you know, throughout the past handful of years, the East may not be as... right. And well I balanced I, as the west of you,
0: will. I wondered if that's where you were going with that, because certainly there's no advantage in in travel, as Brad just talks about, yeah, you no. know if your closest one is still three plus <laughs> hours away uh and yeah there, look there are going to be uh I think some weak sisters in in every conference, each conference every year, and those are the, the the times as Don Cameron would say, "Go up there, put the two points in your pocket, and come back home again right but uh, i don't know it's you know it is interesting. Because Kyle Raftus, the architect of this current um, Sault Ste. Marie team spent his entire junior career in the Eastern conference. Yeah. And I find it really interesting because I don't know, Brad, what do you think of, of that East West division? Like, and I don't mean conference wise. I just mean, there seems to be truly a, a, a different style of play and, and West has historically been best at least this century.
2: Yeah, and and you know what? I mean, I, I think in, in some situations it's, you know, I don't envy any team that ever comes out of the Western Conference, it seems like. Um, you know, you have years where you could have three or four Western Conference teams have 100 points, and it's happened. Um, you know, you've had it where teams in the same division have had 100 points. Um, you know, it, it's, it's not easy. I mean, I, I look at it sometimes where I feel like the high-end teams in the East are always going to be, you know, the high-end teams, regardless of, you know, whether it's, you know, whether it's recently Ottawa, um, you know, for example, you know, that Ottawa team was as good as, you know, those last couple of years before the shutdown was as good as anybody in the West, 100%. I have no question about that. The problem is it's the trickle down effect, you know, for some of the lower tier quote unquote, lower tier teams in the East that kind of drag everything down in a sense, um, you know, and and you look at uh, like a team like Niagara that really struggled um, that last year before the break where, you know, I think that's where kind of the argument comes in that, you know, West is, you know, superior where, you know, you look at, the bottom tier teams in the West are usually still pretty good. Um, You don't necessarily have like, you know, even that Erie team in 1920 or that Greyhound team in 1920, you know, they would have been, you know, they would have been relatively better. I mean, they would have been playoff teams for sure on the Eastern side, but I mean, I wouldn't also say that, you know, either of those teams would have won a playoff series with say, you know, in Ottawa or in Oshawa, right? It's you know the higher end teams are always going to be relatively equal. Um, you know, it's when you get deeper into the conferences that, uh, you know, that you kind of see that divide a little bit. Um, you know, and you never know, right? I mean, you know, I'm sure there were stretches in years past where you know the Eastern Conference or you know at that time it would have been the laden division. You know, I'm sure there were times where you know that side of things was you know, relatively or significantly better than the Western side of things, right? It's, you know, it's the cyclical nature of junior hockey, so to speak. I think we're just seeing, you know, a longer stretch of the West just being so good top to bottom.
0: I'm glad you mentioned those Ottawa teams because I was going to tell Pope that James Boyd would like to have a word with you based on your line of questioning. But it also <laughs> oh. makes me think, it also makes me think about uh, that memorable, memorable 1718 West final, between yeah. Sault Ste. Marie and Kitchener game seven, double overtime. What happens after that? The Greyhounds go on to the OHL final and lose to the yeah. Eastern conferences, Hamilton Bulldogs. And of course, Jay McKee just introduced as the new head coach there in Hamilton said, we wore them down for you. The Kitchener Rangers wore down the Greyhounds for the Hamilton Bulldogs that year. I don't know what to make of it, but Brad, you've seen firsthand what the West yeah. Eastern conference can do even recently.
2: Yeah. And, and you know what, it, you know, it's funny. You mentioned that seventeen eighteen team, you know, when you, when you guys reached out, I was, I was thinking back and like, I thought back to that playoff run and like, you know, the grounds, you know, pretty short work in round one, I believe it was sagging on round one that year. Um, but then round two, they face Owen sound who, you know, you guys have touched on it on the show before, like never an easy team to play against. You go into the, into the Bay shore and, you know, that's a tough rink to play in for visiting teams, especially come playoff time. Um, you know, that, that Owen sound team, you know, they, they put a little bit of a scare into the Greyhounds in round two that year. And, um, you know, probably, if not for the Western final game seven that year, game seven between the Greyhounds and, and Owen Sound and, and that same playoff run probably would have been the craziest game seven I've ever seen. Um, you know, the Greyhounds had a, you know, end up winning the game nine seven, um, you know, but it was a game where, you know, they had a bit of a league going into the third period and all of a sudden Owen Sound made it close. Matt Guzda was, you know, was the starter in that game. I think he was a 16 year old goaltender at that time, but that that Western Conference final, that was you know, probably my favorite playoff series to cover, Um, you know, just because it was just so entertaining between, you know, Kitchener winning in overtime to force game seven and, you know, double overtime where it was literally every shot you had no idea like that game, that was the epitome of a game that could have gone either way. Um, You know, it was, it was such a great series to cover. And, you know, again, that, that OHL final, um, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say that, you know, if if the Greyhounds or Kitchener, whoever gets out of that series, I'm not going to sit here and say that if they win that series in five games that they definitely beat Hamilton because, you know, Hamilton played that Greyhound team tough in that series. Um, you know, they really did. I give Hamilton a lot of credit. Um, you know, John Gruden and David some and the staff there did an outstanding job with that team. And, you know, they deserved the OHL title that year, no question about it. I mean, you know, but on the other hand, the Greyhounds, after... You know, back-to-back seven-game series and the double overtime—the uh, double overtime game seven—that was, you know, that that they were in tough shape in that Hamilton series, and you know, Drew Bannister admitted it. He said they were pretty banged up in that series.
1: Um, I know James Boyd probably wants to have a conversation with me, but two Eastern Conference OHL championships in the last thirteen years—so
0: yeah, not unfair. Just saying.
1: No, for sure. That uh, we call this podcast OHL stories, and rightfully so. Well, um, the story good-
0: is, if, if only this was video, I mean, you're really yeah. going to record the audio, but Pope's dog is making an appearance here. Yeah,
2: he's crawling gonna- all over me. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, he might, Pope's dog might be the best looking out of the, the group of us. Might yeah. be. <laughs> Amen.
1: <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I, have a, I have a, he brought a rock in from outside and I have it on my table and now he's swanning the rock because <laughs> why pay for, or why play with the $100 worth of toys that he has sitting over in our living room? Let's play with a rock that he dug up. <laughs> um, anyway back to you uh, call this OHL, <laughs> OHL <laughs> stories Koch and uh, besides the soup ladies up in the suit do you have any good uh, stories from your time in covering this league
2: yeah you know what I mean it's funny I I, I was thinking back when, uh, when Mike initially reached out I was thinking back to some of the stuff that's happened over the years and I realized like I've got some really bad travel stories in terms of like nightmare travel scenarios um, whether it was know, 2012, going to the Memorial Cup in she again. And um, that was the year that London lost in the final in overtime. And um, flying into Montreal the Friday of opening day, um, get to Montreal, had been bumped up on an earlier flight. And my luggage, which is basically 12 days worth of stuff, didn't make it with me. So in terms of dealing with that, they're like, OK, well, no worries. It'll be on the next flight, which was my original flight before they had bumped me up that flight comes in my bag still hasn't shown up so it ended up coming about 4 hours later and then i still had a 2 hour drive from montreal to Shewinigan with a rental car to get to the rink to get to the hotel on the rink so i ended up walking into the rink i think it was during the national anthem pretty much walked into the rink grabbed my game notes and got settled in um you know another random travel story was, and actually involves Barry and slightly off topic to that, the press box in Barry, um, which I know you guys have discussed on the show. Um, I believe it was 2017, 18. Um, I had made, uh, I, There's a fan group that travels to games um, out of the Sioux that, you know, they're kind enough to let me let me travel with them when they've gone to games and that year they were doing a a weekend in Barry and Sudbury they were playing the grounds were playing in Barry on the Saturday night and Sudbury Sunday afternoon at four o'clock. So we go down Friday, um, you know, Saturday, a cold snap hits basically three quarters of the province. So it went from relatively warm weather in Barrie to about 25 below in a matter of like 12 hours. Um, So we're in the press box in Barrie. I've got Jerry Liskam and Spanky Robinson. Spanky was down in Southern Ontario for some other stuff. So he was doing the game. And um, I mean, you guys know the setup in in Barrie in terms of the radio booth there, where it's, there's that one door kind of off to your left. And it leads outside, and it was like it was a point where, like, if you were standing near the door, you felt like you were standing outside. It was so cold. Um, So during that game, uh, I think I want to say it was in the second period, sometime. Like I said, I've got Jerry there, Spanky there, the grounds goalie coach Dan Stewart at the time was sitting on my on the other side of me, and all of a sudden, right in front of me, two fans start getting into an argument, and not a minor one of. Hey, you're wrong. Shut up. It was starting to get profane, which made it even worse because Jerry and Spanky, it was getting to the point where some of it was getting picked up on their mics. So, like Jerry cuts to commercial, sends it to commercial, no big deal, but then all of a sudden these guys got up and nearly ended up coming to blows. And like I'm trying to live blog a game and I've got these two guys standing up randomly in front of me basically saying you want to go, you want to go and I was kind of in a position where I wanted to basically say to them, well, if you guys are going to go, just go, because I've got a job to do and I can't see through both of you guys. Um, Worst part, and actually that wasn't even the worst part of the trip, was getting back. So I had my vehicle parked at the rink. So Sunday we get back from Sudbury, it's a four o'clock game. We get back from Sudbury around 10, 1030, give or take. And again, super cold weather in the Sioux and my vehicle was the only one in the lot that didn't start. Thankfully, thankfully there was uh, some guys playing pickup hockey. One guy was able to give me a boost and the next day I had to go get a new battery for the car, but um yeah, it was uh it was an entertaining but not very fun finish to that trip. Um yeah, I mean, you know, there was a night coming back from Hamilton, um actually in that OHL final where You know, driving back overnight, it was um, the overtime game in Hamilton. So it was the second of the two games in Hamilton. I believe that was game four. Um, Game goes into overtime. We're traveling back overnight. I'm riding on the bus. The Espanola turnoff, which I'm sure you guys have have been to (laughs) more than once, um, I felt bad for the people in there because all of a sudden at like, I want to say it was probably 3.30 or 4 in the morning. Where they're probably usually dead, and that's probably usually the staff are like, "Hey, I want the night shift because it's quiet. Those poor people in there all of a sudden a bus pulls up and like close to sixty people get off and like everybody went through the Tim Hortons that night. that poor kid earned their money that night that's that's for sure it's uh ah. but I mean a lot of fun traveling I mean, don't get me wrong it's uh you know a lot of good ranks, a lot of good times and you know, it's uh, like, you know, like we've said before, it's it, this league's a joy to be a part of.
0: Espinola getting the shout out on this episode. And, you know, that <laughs> you, you reminded me when you were talking about getting back in your car, not starting. I've had that happen to me in Kitchener, but it also reminded me of a time we came back and there had been so much snow while we were away mm-hmm. on, you know. Cleaning your car off was a chore. Yeah. And Steve Spot, the former Rangers coach, the one time had gone inside and got a bigger broom and came out and helped me. I'm like, thanks, coach, appreciate that. And we had a similar experience at a Tim Hortons in Plymouth years and years ago. And just it was always, it wasn't an overnight stop, but it was just a stop we always made and it was a little bit right. understaffed. And the Rangers coaches, all of them, got behind the counter and started serving the players. Cause otherwise we would have been late for the game. So either yeah. that or you skip the Tim stop. I'm yeah. not sure. <laughs> anyway, Popey, his name's come up a couple of times. So I hope you'll go along with me here as I, I call an audible for our sure. featured guest on this episode, because Brad mentioned him. We talked about the way this Sue team is built and we had a chance to talk to the most recent architect in the, uh, the train of Kyle's up there in Sault Ste. Marie, we reached out to GM Kyle Raftis uh, when we were on a trip not too long back a couple of years ago and asked for a few minutes. He gave us many minutes. We Remember, we sat down in his office uh, on an off day and had a lengthy chat with Mr. Raftus.
1: Yes, we get to uh, find out what it means to be a Sioux Greyhound, as he put it. He looks to not only just draft good players, he wants a Sioux type player.
0: Brad mentioned the same thing. Uh, Mr. Cachimilio, it's always good to catch up. Thanks very much for joining us this week. Hey, guys.
2: It's been a blast. I appreciate you guys having me on.
3: Did you expect after last year's run for you guys to have this kind of season? I I think whenever we're looking at expectations of coming into a year, it's really... I think it would have been tough to predict this just because of looking at the not only the crop of players that we had to replace from last year, but the entire staff. We lost a few scouts in the off season, and It was really a, a chance that there was a lot of optimism internally, but because we had to see how everyone was going to gel, that was too hard to guess right out of the gate. But I think it's something that every season we've come into over the last couple of years, it's always been about how can we get the individual player up to speed as quickly as possible. And then, you know, as the year progresses, it improves the team. And then we kind of hopefully gel as a team when we need to at the right time. So to answer your question, uh, I don't think you could have guessed it at this point. How, do you, how, how challenging is it to continually maintain that culture season after season? I, I think it's, it's one of those things that can snowball in, in a good way too, Mike, because I think when you're replacing coaches that are like, my first year we had Sheldon Keefe here, obviously he's gone on to great success. Drew Bannister came in to replace him with Joe Sorella, Ryan Ward, all three of them go on to American League. And I, I think it just makes it that much more appealing. And it, I think it's it's like anything when you everybody's kind of seeing the success and seeing you know that they're giving an opportunity to give their own stamp on a team. I think it makes it that much more appealing and no different as a player when you're kind of bringing in a player You know we have a plan in place for each one of them whether they're a late round pick free agent you know early round selection for us and it's something that if we can put them in the right opportunity to to fit their skill set i think it helps and so i think we look at it from a coaching side and player side of the same same style
1: you lost eight big players from last year's team your coaching staff and you just mentioned you
3: lost scouts too what was the offseason like for you? Yeah, it was, uh, you know what, It's uh, to circle back to my first comment, like we kind of went through it my, after my first year. So it's funny, not only when you're watching games now, you're watching for other staff too, because I just feel like it's just going to happen at some point. So it's kind of a, I, I think it's, it's a great thing for the organization because it re-energizes it a little bit. And it's something that we, we get to grow our network. I think everybody was real excited here to be here when, they, when they're hired. And then when you get fresh faces, everyone's that much more eager to jump into it, too. It doesn't get stagnant. There's not a, oh, you know, woe was me. This wasn't the team. Like, there was, there was a, a real good energy. And I give a lot of credit to John D. and Jamie Tardoff and Jordan Smith for coming in with that. Because I think it would have been easy for them to come in and say... Well, we we're returning only you know a couple guys, and we're new here. It's young players, you know, and kind of manage expectations. But they jumped in, and they had a lot of enthusiasm. they have been working hard with it, and I think it's paid off. We're sitting here in your office in the arena for this conversation, and
0: I don't see a safe around anywhere. I don't know that you're going to just expose all of the secrets. But while we're on scouting, uh, as an example, Morgan Frost is a late fourth rounder to your hockey club, and he just scored his hundredth as a Sioux Greyhound. I mean, he's just been incredible uh how much how much can we get out of you about the secret to the success i mean scouting is obviously a big part of it but you guys have been continually nine straight uh, years you've sent somebody to the
3: prospects game that kind of thing which, which is a chl record how are you doing it well i think for us it's it's you know people talk about you know draft lists and how they prepare and we look at it there's three ways you can acquire a player obviously it's through trade which we we like to think we're aggressive on, but at the same time we just we don't just add players or subtract players just to do it or, or just to kinda of appease everyone. It's more so how can we benefit the team? And I think when you're talking about you know The draft's always going to be there in port selection, and it's something that when we're trying to build out our roster and look at our draft, it's not necessarily looking for the best OHL player. It's who's going to be the best Sue Greyhound. So I think when we're always a- approaching it, it's who's going to fit with what our needs are. And sometimes there's players that aren't a fit somewhere else that might be a fit for us, and you guys have been around long enough to see how that sometimes is just not a fit. And we try and really go after the players that are going to fit what we do well. And I think that's something that gives them the opportunity to come in and have success, and that's how you develop players. And I think the name of the game here isn't necessarily the draft. It, the draft's 50%, and then 50 percent's the development side of it, because there's lots of good players that come in and don't take a step, and there's lots of good players that you know come in, and it doesn't matter where they go, they're just going to be elite players. But I think for us, and this is no one to blame myself, because I'm the one who's traded them away. We haven't picked in the second round in, in four years. So I think it's something that we've had to find those guys, and our, our scouting staff does a great job. And I think it goes from synergy from scouting staff right to the coaching staff of what we're all trying to find, and that's the next Sue Greyhound. So along
0: those lines, then, you have to get the player here to develop them. And we've seen occasions in this league where players say, I'm not going to City X or City Y. We are in the northernmost outpost of the Ontario Hockey League. Uh, How do you make it attractive and and have you had trouble? Do you have to look at guys and say, do you you know they're not going to come up here?
3: You know what? Um, I I wouldn't say there's trouble with it. I think for us, just because when you look at high-end players in their minor midget year, their schedule is jammed, so we don't even get really the opportunity, which is unfortunate to bring a lot of players up throughout the year to recruit on that side of it. So... It's a little bit of in the living room, kind of painting a picture and laying out a development plan. And I think in my first year, it was a little bit uncertainty because they weren't really sure, you know, how is everything going to play out just on my side of it. But I think since we've been able to kind of have a little bit of success here and and you could kind of use those examples of players that are recent coming through the program, I think it's really helped. So I, I think for for us, it's never I don't think there's an issue players reporting or wanting to play here but it's still like anything you don't want to get comfortable with it and we try and still be really aggressive with who we're trying to attract
1: I want to go back a little bit you said that it's not uh always just looking at who's going to be the best OHLer, but who's going to be the best sue greyhound and you've said that a couple times in articles
3: that I've read in your mind what is a good sue greyhound well I think for us, um, whenever you've looked at the roster, it, it's it's a creative player, a player with high skill, high hockey IQ and plays with some pace. And I think that's whenever we're trying to find a player, whether it's a defenseman, you know, that those three attributes that I mentioned, that's gonna be on closing space on a on a player, attacking players, and then being able to get going and transition in the same way. And that's how you kinda can create these five man units that we use and, and I think when we're trying to bring in players that if they struggle with whether, you know, whether it's slipping pucks through the middle of the ice, you know, closing on someone, how do they escape uh, four checkers on the back end and then it, on the other side of them, the forward group, how are they creating space for the line mates? Not just getting into that stagnant spot where you're a young player in this league, get on the ice, don't make a mistake, get it in, in deep, bump into someone and then get off on the way back. Like we don't want players that come in and just try and survive because you usually find and a year later everyone doesn't know what to do with that player and then they you know you found that maybe they need a fresh start somewhere else or maybe it's just they weren't the player you thought they were going to be but maybe they didn't get the opportunity to be that player so we try and bring in players that are going to play with a lot of confidence and you know you can't just sit a player down and and tell them to play with confidence they have to believe it themselves and I think part of that puck moving and and those attributes that they need to check off those boxes for us I think really really helps them when they step into our lineup. I think part of that then leads to what you've mentioned before, is that development.
1: Once they're here, developing that player. How does that come about? Because you've mentioned three coaches in your time here now. Is it the the development that you want as a general manager to input or do you leave a lot of that up to the coaching staff and
3: stuff i think we we set out a plan early in the year for each player and it's it's funny a lot of it kind of blends into itself a lot of the first year players are on the same kind of development plan a lot of second year players because there's pressure for every player whether it's you know morgan frost or barrett hayden that are have signed their NHL contracts now they want to play world juniors you get guys that are coming in at 16 trying to make their name in the league 17 year old they're going to their draft there's just like as you know every year there's you know 18 year old you want to sign a contract like there's every year there's that pressure on them or something else that's on their mind and you want to kind of simplify it of this is how we believe you can get there um and let's build it out from their off ice program and because you know even going through as a player there's nothing worse than at the end of your meeting someone saying hey Hey Chris, you got to get bigger, stronger, and faster. Like that's every player in this league. It doesn't matter what. So you try and articulate that as good as much as possible, and as we joke with players at training camp, it becomes very clear then of who should be there and what spot they should be in. So you try and do that as best you can, and it you know usually you get good feedback from them on that side of it, and a good buy-in, and what type of work they're going to put into it on top of it. I was always told I needed to get smaller, not bigger. <laughs> I need to get bigger. <laughs> there you go. Uh, you mentioned earlier
0: uh, three different ways to acquire a player, and one of them is through the trade route. You obviously went out and did that in a big way last year with the Radish and Sambrook deal yeah. in particular, and, and you spent a lot of assets in terms of draft picks and a good young player to do that. Traditionally, then, the next year would be that sort of reset, and you might be selling off assets you have to recoup, the assets you have on the roster to recoup some of those draft picks. Y- you obviously didn't do that this year. And there was a lot of conversation about what what's Kyle Raftis going to do up right. in Sault Ste. Marie. Uh, at what point did you did you know? Like, Obviously, with the team going so well, did that force your hand into standing pat, so to speak, this
3: year? Well, I think it's it, it comes down to when, when this whole year started, it was it was going to be... We knew we had elite players in elite positions. You know, Matt Colwell, Jordan Sandbrook on the back end, Matt Valton at... You know, we had two of probably... The, you know, we're biased here, but we think we have two of the best centers in the league. So right down the middle of you take any textbook of how you build a team. We, we were real comfortable with that spot. But as you've seen over the last few years, it's usually not the top end teams that win because of just those top end talent. It's their, their depth in their program. And I think for us, when we saw the, how the young players were starting to develop and you really got a taste of that through the world junior uh, time, when you saw our, a lot of our younger players look around that there's no one's going to help us tonight. It, it's, it's on us or it's going to get ugly. And I think they went on a great run there and I, I give them a lot of credit to, you know, pushing us in that spot and, and I think with our older players, they weren't necessarily looking to go anywhere either. So I think that's a, a side of things that people don't read into a ton. That It's not a case that if a player is a great player for you for four years and you're having a great year, they're having a lot of fun for it with a new staff, is there a time when let's... You know, evaluate the situation. Sure, we did look at a lot of different areas, but we just felt the return of what we were, gonna, we were looking at for a lot of our players and the impact, it wasn't going to guarantee any change in the team for next year. So I think for us, it's what kind of development can we get from those young players? Because we still feel like there's a lot of growth that can be done, and I think that's what we're seeing right now.
1: Is that a decision that's made a month before the deadline, a week before the deadline, or is it a deadline day where you're still thinking, I don't know what I'm really going to do?
3: No, I, I think you. it's like you have a plan a month in advance that changes every day. I think it's really <laughs> how it goes. Now, go le- leading a few days up to the deadline, I don't think there's much that can change because I think there's, there's always little tweaking deals I think you see kind of on that day or leading up to it, but a lot of the big deals, like, they take time, and it's not just because of the number of picks or whatever it might be, but you can't necessarily just pull somebody in and say, this is where you're going and this is the selection. So I think that our selections are getting a return. So for us, it was kind of, we had an idea how it was probably going to shake out. It did shake out that way, and it was something that we're comfortable with, and I think everyone's still excited about the group. Real quickly, you mentioned
1: how those big deals come about. Obviously, the big deal last year. I just want to go back to it and how something like that does come about because you obviously had the guys that you wanted in Radish and uh, Sandbrook, when a deal like that has come about, do you and Dave Brown talk about okay, like where's the starting point and then moves like between own eight nine picks oh I kind of like this player, right. or how does that type of deal of uh, that magnitude shake down?
3: Well, I think a lot of times teams try to find a comparable player, which is not always easy to be done and it not everybody has the, the equal assets to those deals, but I think a lot of times that's how you know you start to talk about is there a fit there is this somewhere that you know in terms of what they're looking for on the other side of it too and um, I think with the way that deal came about, it was just kind of looking at past trades, you know, that have been with a world junior player, you know, with that's come from winning a championship, like, you know, different things like that. And and you're trying to kind of see where there's a fit on your side of it. And and for us and any of those big deals, like we've never looked at the deadline like. Because we didn't want our organization to be a spot where every December, kids either think 10 guys are moving out or 10 players are coming in. Like, you want to make sure that the group's got you in that situation. And if you can tweak, and, and I think Jordan Sandbrook and, and Taylor Raj were great pieces for us to add in, and they were they were massive for us in the playoffs, but it didn't change our culture. didn't change you know what got us to that situation. I think it really paid off for us. But to go back to your original question, I think... You know a lot of times when you're talking about it it's more so you know what years are maybe you're filling in for them maybe they have some holes in their draft grid and, and trying to see what, what what they're looking for because sometimes in your head and a fan's head what two teams might make sense you know you pick up the phone and you talk to that they don't see it that way so i think it's always it's always interesting how those deals kind of come come together i gotta say kyle it's a, it's a little bit i'm thinking as we're talking here and
0: i remember when you came into this league i I covered you as a player in this (laughs) league you're a second rounder to the oshawa generals and barely 10 years after you graduate out of this league uh you're a general manager of a really successful franchise was there a point in time after your playing career where you you set your sights on
3: becoming a gm or how did this all come about for kyle raftus yeah i think for myself i I went to school after i was done playing and used my OHL scholarship and you kind of just you know you have some minor pro opportunities but for me i was kind of just very excited about the whole the entire development path like it wasn't something that i i said i have to be a general manager you know you want to be involved in hockey you get that i found you go through school and you have those first couple years where you're just getting focused you're thinking about different opportunities but then you start to get that burn a little bit of yeah you know what you do miss the game a little bit and you know what can i do to be a part of it and everyone always thinks of just generic titles like you know head coach scout general manager but they don't know all these other layers that are now coming out in hockey and i think it's something that the more you learn and get an understanding of it and i think when i got the job at the ohl league office it kind of just you really got to see how a lot of things work behind closed doors and i think it just the more interested i got in just seeing how you know development of players and team building and as a player and it it sounds you know odd to say now but when you're going through it you think every team operates the same everybody's looking for the same player they're going off the same draft like it's kind of you just think it's just luck how everything's working and i think just to kind of get on that side of it and kind of create a a little bit on your own i think was kind of fascinating to me and when this opportunity opened and they approached me about it it was something that i had never thought about if you would ask me even two weeks before this came about that i thought it'd be the general manager superhands not a chance like i just didn't even wasn't even on my thought process but for me it just became a it's definitely a challenge and it's kind of something that i was really excited about so i think that's when it it started for me and sometimes being a former second round and us not picking they think I'm picking on that round just <laughs> as, a, as, as, as my development pathway but that's not the case I promise you and I, I think it's something that the more picks you can have in a draft is obviously better but yeah I get a lot of being a former high second-round pick, they think I'm taking it out on that round as a whole. (laughs) I love that.
1: Uh, You mentioned your time at the league and in player development and recruitment and stuff.
3: How much do you take from that experience to now as a general manager because you hadn't been a general manager before? Yeah, definitely. I think it it was massive for me because you get to meet, and the way they kind of do it, you talk to every team, and they'll you know, educate black and white how the OHL works. Obviously, each team's going to do their own kind of... um, Description of how they operate, but you kind of take everybody through, so that way there's no gray area for any high end player coming through. They understand every, how everything works, and then you sit a lot with kind of the higher end families, let's say, and, and, and really just listening in those conversations of what this this age athlete coming through now, what their parents are looking for, you know, from whether they're an American player, a kid from Toronto, a kid from all, they're all over. So you, you get a little. Grasp of what they're looking for and what the misinformation is, maybe on their side of it. So, for uh, to be in those conversations, that you know, I, I think it's been massive in in terms of having that experience and getting an understanding of what they're really looking for as a fifteen high end OHL player.
0: Obviously with a long
3: bus ride up here
0: yesterday had some time to do some reading And uh, there's a lot of ink about the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds Right now Last year you make the run to the OHL Championship And we've already talked about the deal you made to get there So there was focus on the team Would you rather be flying under the radar this year? Because everybody's talking about you
3: Yeah, it's, it's kind of coming in a little bit of a hurry here In the last two weeks Because I think for a long time it was Everybody was just waiting for the air to come out of the tire mm-hmm. a little bit And I think, yeah, the young guys are playing well But let's see how long it can, kind of lasts with it But it's kind of a unique spot for us Because I think last year Last year, it was we were a little bit of a team kind of running away with it at this point. I think we clinched uh, first overall almost in February. So it was kind of something that was coming up. And I think for us this year, it's it's a little bit of a hunger because there's some players on the team that have only really been a part of good teams and they, they still have a little swagger to them. And now we have a group of young players that are around them that that's all they know as well, too. So it's something that I think they feel like they've been a little bit discredited. And it's kind of an interesting side to be on the underdog side this year.
1: I don't know. it's funny we're laughing about a team that First in the division as an underdog <laughs> This year, that's how good the season was last year And us being up here during that Western Conference final We got a chance to kind of go around town And it was unbelievable to go around this town Posters of Sue Greyhound symbols up in every single business Let's Go Hounds printed out everywhere It's all anyone was talking about How have you, or how has the city or town changed now As you guys are uh, leading up to another playoffs?
3: Yeah, I think it's, it's always been a great fan base. Like we, it's, the crowds are always great. You always have, you know, you can just walk through a mall and you can overhear people talking about their thoughts on the Greyhounds and, you know, whether it might be, you know, line up or like, there's a lot of passion here. So I I think that's always going to be there. But I think last year, it it really re-energized a little bit of, there was a little bit. And just be, me being an outsider, not being from the Sioux originally, when you came up here, there was a little bit of always waiting for something to happen. You know, even sometimes it would be, well, do the kids still want to play? And and I I think there's a little bit of an embracement last year of just, hey, we are a premier t- team. The kids do want to play here. This is, you know, as a city, this is something that, you know, we're. Everyone knows where we are on a map, but it's like there's a lot of pride came out in terms of their Greyhounds and being on a national stage, and obviously, you know, getting to the finals. This is the first time any game had been played in May in this building, which is something that, you know, a lot of people take for granted and they talk about you know some years past but it was kind of cool to see people getting back into it and really believing in it so i think it was it was an unbelievable year to be a part of you know you set a lot of records and it it just to see what it means to a lot of people here because there's no other team here this is it's a sue greyhound there's not a you're not going to watch another team play like this is this is this is the show in in our town here and they're real proud of it and it was great to see them kind of embrace that even further
0: I was going to ask the same thing about how the town likes the team because of last year. So, look, we've had a lot of this guy's time, and there's Muyo's waiting downstairs. Uh, I I got a real quick one. Muyo's waiting. I know, I know, I know. Real quick. We talked about last year,
1: Game 7, Western Conference Final, double OT. That whole game, what is going
3: through your mind as a general manager? I couldn't even tell you right now because I I feel like during those – we went into a ton of overtime games, even getting up to that point. It just seemed like – it's in the back of your head you know you're you're happy like we talk about a little bit internally about how we're playing in terms of different things that we're tracking and what's an efficient game for us so this is what we but it, when you go into double overtime it doesn't matter like at that point it's just you don't you don't want to see one bad bounce or something just crush this entire season and it's you're at home ice. You can just feel it, like the nerve. Sometimes, obviously, home ice is huge, but sometimes it's like you can feel the weight of everybody just like sitting on pins and needles and being in double overtime. Yeah, it was. You feel very helpless as a general manager. You feel like you're doing a lot of official business while overtime is going on, <laughs> but there's really nothing you can do. So you, it's almost more nerve-wracking, I think, than being a player because you're just you have. As, I like to think I have a some say of the outcome but once you're in overtime that's really there's nothing i can do outside of kind of sit and watch like everybody else but no it was it was great to to see happen and you know see Jack score score, who, who you know came here as a 15 year old you know signed went back you know trusted us and his plan became an nhl draft, and it was kind of cool to see him be the the hero there and obviously he's been uh he just got off to a, a good start there in the american league as well but yeah for us it was kind of yeah, I don't know. It's it, those are exciting games to be a part of and even better when you can be on the right side of it obviously.
1: For our Ranger fans listening, sorry I
0: brought that
3: up. No, you know, it's a good last <laughs> question and even on the other side of it, not that we have any influence over things
0: either, but that game will forever be etched in our memories and Rangers fans too, even though for that side, they were on the wrong end of it. But right. what a game, what drama we had in this building yes. what
3: 9 months ago. Crazy. Yeah. Even yeah. that entire series felt like oh. a month. Like <laughs> yeah. it, like yeah. just you're either playing or you're on the road like it was just kind of like and and I think this isn't any slight to anybody else, but between like that series and our own sound that went to Game Seven, we wanted, like I just think emotionally, uh, we ran into some injury problems in the next series, but it was just like those were two of the best teams I think in the league last year. We had to go to seven games against them, and within 26 days, you know, so it's 14 games. So it just and with the miles that we got on, even even though you're flying, once you get to a certain point, it it takes a toll. Even I, I was like as a general manager, and uh, like I said, I'm not out there. You know, playing in hard minutes like a lot of those guys, but yeah, it's it's tough. The Western Conference, as you guys know, it's it's never. There's no easy nights. You know, even like even in the regular season, and when you get down to the the nitty gritty of those playoffs, it's every team's deep, and there's there's no there's no tough kind of just. Well, let's we'll find a soft spot here, and we'll just walk through it. It's it's tough. So that, that was a great series. So. I think eventually the gas tank
1: becomes empty. So let's go fuel up with Muyo's <laughs> chicken wings.
3: Thanks a lot, Kyle. We
0: appreciate. <laughs> this. No, thank you, guys. I
3: really appreciate it. <music> Find us on Apple, Spotify,
0: YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.